Resilience 2100, Tools for Navigating Change in the 21st Century. Because of our intelligence, technology, we think we're different from cats, but a high percentage of, of our behavior is, is, is the same as the cat or any other animal, uh, which is dangerous for us, because unlike the cat, okay, the cat can do some stupid mistake and kill itself. We can uh, kill the earth. You're listening to Resilience 2100. I'm your host, Steve Mottemeyer. Today we are talking to Nikos Salangeros, professor of mathematics at the University of Texas in San Antonio. Nikos is recognized as one of the top 100 urban thinkers of all time. He collaborated with Christopher Alexander on the four-volume set, The Nature of Order. Today we'll be talking about resilience, emergence, and robots. What is it about resilience that attracts you at all? It's a neat intellectual problem that has an enormous practical value to the future of humankind. Uh, I I came through it through um, design and uh, the design of buildings and cities. A lot of but not all, of questions uh, regarding resilience is uh, the resilience of cities. Because disasters occur in cities, and then the question uh, uh, is asked, um, um, and it becomes a question in resilience. How can the city protect itself from a future uh, perturbation or shock from various different causes? Uh, Once something happens, either predicted or unpredicted, how can um, the city respond? How can the humans in the city respond to bring it back to uh, working conditions, how it was before? Uh, Can we learn from uh, past events where we have recovered in order to uh, prepare ourselves? These are questions that go hand in hand with the original design of cities. And I know that's not the popular view today. The popular view today is that you sit on your computer screen and you draw a city, and then you have contractors just build that city. It is simply irresponsible just to build things, uh, assuming the perfect continuation of present conditions. Now, you said when they first started building cities, there was something going on that we've lost. What was it that was going on when people first started building cities? Well, people used um, minimum energy because they didn't have any energy. So they were the, the uh, uh, perfect developers of passive solar energy and the wind energy and uh, orientation, uh, compactness, compact urban fabric because you either walked and uh, uh, South America did not have uh, horses 
so people walk. The, the, the yama cannot be ridden. Okay, in in uh, in Asia we had the horses, so at least you had some 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 traffic. But uh, in all of Latin America, there were completely pedestrian cities. You didn't even have carts. They did not have carts. Uh, uh, yama drawn carts were not invented. So uh, for thousands of years you had cities that, that solved these problems, um, and uh, uh, of course the these uh, typologies and solutions evolve. So uh, a new generation or, or some place in the world would try the new idea. And it may work or it may not work. If it doesn't work, then uh, the oral record says, don't try this because it was tried over there and it failed. So as long as there's continuity in the, in the oral record or even written record, uh, when that started to, uh, to develop with writing, uh, then you uh, you saved uh, an index of anti-patterns, as they are known in the software community. Things that look like they're good ideas but don't work, for for important reasons that only come apparent become apparent later. So, uh, in order to save repeating the same mistake, the software community has a catalog of anti-patterns. At the same time, on the other side, you have a catalog of patterns. But those patterns, you, you don't actually need the catalog because you see them in practice. Those are the successful practices. So successful practice, either in software or in, uh, in our buildings and cities, are the traditional uh, typologies that work, have survived for millennia because they do work. So all we need to do is look at the uh, traditional built environment and extract those patterns. We have to read those patterns there. I mentioned Christopher Alexander was looking, was it congruence was the word or? Coherence. Coherence. Yes. And, and coherence was how these various independent patterns really relate to each other, right? Exactly. Not, not only how they relate to each other, but how they can assemble, they relate to each other, and then they assemble, but the, the um, final product is a much larger entity. Mm. That final product, if it's to be organic, has to be coherent. Okay, because if you bring things together, each one of them working very nicely, you bring them together and they don't cohere, well, they're sort of uh, still independent. They could be close to each other, they could be next to each other, but they're still independent in order to, to get uh, emergence. You know, emergence is when something occurs that is more than the sum of the parts. And that's what uh, organic life is, it's, it's emergent. So in order to get emergence from patterns or from, from rules in architecture, uh, there has to be a coherence so that the, uh, the product or the set of rules create something more than using each of the individual pieces. Uh, you enter that place and it's a magical place because everything, all the components are, are cooperating to create a magnificent experience for you, the user, and you feel that. It's a coherent experience. Let me make a detour here. Um, Alexander proposes uh, various um, uh, sets of rules for design, for architecture, and for creating cities and urban spaces. And then he uh, illustrates them. So he states them. He says, These are, this is what I have discovered in my 50, 60 years of work. And he states them for every architect or architecture student to use. 
And then he gives examples uh, in biological systems. And he said, look, you see these biological systems, I can show you each one of these properties in the biological system. It's pretty obvious. But then, in a further chapter, he says, look, these properties are present in physical systems, mm-hmm. pre-biology. So this, is, this has to do with the basic structure of the universe, how matter itself comes together. Yeah. And that is a profound uh, discovery of, of uh, Christopher. Emergence, to me, sounds like something, it's like a, it sounds more like a process than a thing. Is, is it a thing or is it a process? Well, the, the process uh, creates emergence, and then the final result is a thing. It's a physical state. Okay. It's a f- physical state that is highly connected, mm-hmm. and it has uh, extraordinary properties mm-hmm. that the um, components don't have. For example, you know, sodium and, um, and chlorine. They, they bond together, they make salt. The salt has new properties that neither uh, chlorine and, uh, and sodium have. In fact, chlorine and sodium are poisonous. <laughs> uh, but salt, you know, we, we take, yeah. in fact, we need to, to eat a certain amount of salt. Yeah. Now, in the example of the salt crystal, it ends there. Because you, you get a salt crystal, there's nothing more that can be done on a high level. Whereas biological systems go up more and more and more levels and you get things that start to move around and start to reproduce mm. and then you get uh, ecosystems that are systems that contain the organism as a system and then you get humans who create societies and the societies themselves uh, uh, acquire social coherence and those societies create art and song and, and dance and music and literature which this is not this is a level of complexity that's not present in individual human being. Yeah. And on and on and on, you know, and then we create spaceships and yeah. you know, all this is is, is a, an immersion phenomenon. I have an uncle who was an artist who grew up in the Pacific Northwest, and he was, you know, relatively successful. Morris Graves is his name. He and I were talking one day, and he just said, humans, we're a failed species. We're destroying all of nature, you know, we're cruel. And I said, but Morris, what about art and literature and symphonies and all those wonderful things that we've done and love? And he just said, it's not worth it. There's <laughs> too, too much... Too much grief, you know, too much damage around it. Do you think Uncle Morris was right? Um, and, and what are your thoughts about resilience and why, sh- why we should do it? Well, you, uh, you're asking many questions mixed up and they're very heavy questions. Yes, your Uncle Morris was right in that humans are terribly destructive creatures. Uh, but uh, at the same time, uh, we are highly uh, creative and we can create wonderful things in the world. It's just the two uh, two parts of human nature, um, among other parts. Uh, and as far as resilience, um, I think the majority of the people don't have in their conscious any idea about resilience. They will just uh, doggedly pursue uh, personal profit and do what works because it has worked, and that's what they know. There's an inertia. To what they're doing and uh, you could be there with a warning flag saying that what you're doing is 
is fragile can lead to disaster. You you can lose uh, not only the uh, quality of life that you have, you can lose your life. We can lose a portion of the human population. They're just not going to listen. There's no way to convince people because of its inertia, mm -hmm. uh, narrow-mindedness. But that's part of, of the animal nature of human beings. Uh, you tell a cat something, the cat's not going to listen to you. The cat, <clears throat> the cat has the instincts, the instinct is to eat and 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 uh, and just the uh, performance biological function is driven by instinct. Uh, we uh, because of our intelligence, technology, we think we're different from cats. But a high percentage of of our behavior is is, is the same as the cat or any other animal, uh, which is dangerous for us, because unlike the cat. Okay, the cat can do some stupid mistake and kill itself. We can uh, kill the earth. We can create a totally radioactive earth. And, and other disasters, because we have this, this enormous power. You're listening to Resilience 2100. Today we're talking with Nikos Salangueros, professor of mathematics at the University of Texas in San Antonio. We're talking about urban theory and resilience. You trained as a physicist in, was it Florida? It was in uh, New York, oh, Stony, Stony Brook, New York. So, but your undergrad, didn't you, what was your undergrad in? Uh, physics okay. with mathematics. Okay. And uh, my, my thesis in physics was mathematical physics, mm. so very close to mathematics. And what was the thesis? The thesis was on the classification of Clifford algebras oh. and their applications to field theory. Oh, <laughs> that's one of my favorite topics. <laughs> well, you may or may not be aware of Clifford algebras, but no. uh, it, uh, it, what I did was a classification, uh, which means uh, that I had to look at various different applications of Clifford algebras in different parts of physics during different eras by different people that were not related. Uh -huh. And I found a common uh, scheme and classified them. So I guess that has been extremely useful for my later work, looking at the broad picture and trying to piece things together in a systems view mm -hmm. that uh, heretofore have been successful applications but totally isolated, that people don't know the connection. Occasionally I think, you know, all this work I did is wasted. Well. The main idea helped me for my future career in architecture. The great architects of the past did exactly what Christopher Alexander did. They would study those uh, typologies for what they wanted to build and see which ones are the most successful and try to copy those uh, geometrical elements from those typologies into creating uh, their work. And perhaps they wanted to put their own stamp in it by making it a little more grand a little better, um, so that uh, they will satisfy the uh, the architect's ego of of this being the best, and and the um, but being the best by using the uh, successful discovered typology that had evolved over thousands of years. Now contrast that to contemporary architects who want to put the stamp by totally changing what has worked mm -hmm. for a thousand years, 
and that gives them their signature. So what do you think about robots? They're wonderful. They help. <laughs> yeah, I think um, uh, the robotic vacuum cleaner may have been invented by uh, by the robots, uh, robot expert in artificial intelligence at MIT. Oh. He, he, uh, he had, the, I think, the first robotic vacuum cleaner. I don't know if it's the, the same company that makes yours. iRobot is the name of the yeah, company. Yeah, iRobot, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I used a quote of his on artificial intelligence in my oh. talk at the AIA. Ah, what was, it, what was the quote, do you recall? Yeah, intelligence uh, is the uh, ability to interact with the environment. So the I is for intelligent robot, yes. and, and, and my little robot, which we call Roby, he yeah. is interacting with our environment and not getting stuck. Well, let me explain. Rodney Brooks, okay. who was a full professor at MIT, unless he be, until he became so rich from his robots <laughs> that he quit just around the company. So he developed really a breakthrough by uh, figuring out that intelligence is really interaction with the environment. So previous uh, attempts at artificial intelligence would have a huge memory in the robot. The robot would store a representation of the environment and then figure out through computer power how to uh, navigate, how to move and do things. Uh, Rodenberg said, no, we don't need any memory. The uh, environment provides its own memories right there. All we need is interaction rules of the robot mm -hmm. with the actual environment, real mm -hmm. time, no memory. Right. And he, uh, of course, it has to be computation, and that's it. And he created the, the, the first really intelligent movable robots. Mm -hmm. So the, the old-fashioned robots with the, with the stored information would move, say, and they would come to a triangle you know, on the surface. They would come to a triangle that would stop. And then they would compute for hours. And then, and then they would start to move around the triangle. If they come to a square, they would stop and the program would, would crash. Whereas Rodney Brooks uh, has, has no information on triangles. or, or mm -hmm. they, they navigate real environments. Mm -hmm. So he, he, uh, used, he, uh, he designed and built the Mars Explorer. They did oh. a wonderful job on Mars. Yeah. Uh, walking around and uh, or rolling around and... Mm -hmm. uh, and picking up samples. So what does that tell us for uh, architecture? Yeah, what does it tell us? An architecture that is fashionable, that disconnects the user from the surfaces, and is an unintelligent architecture, and is meant to make the user unintelligent. Traditional architecture and vernacular architecture, including slums, arises from maximal connectivity of the user to the built environment. And in traditional and vernacular architecture, the user shapes the surfaces and the spaces to maximize this interaction. What do you need to know to navigate change in the 21st century? What would it be?
first of all, to um, identify who the change is going to benefit. And of course, I have my own answer to this. I'm very prejudiced. I think it should benefit uh, the largest slice of the existing population. And not just some elite. And then um, uh, implement techniques for, for uh, anticipating and implementing change. And that's um, something that I mentioned in my talk to the AIA. Uh, run scenarios on different time scales. Just keep imagining stories of, of possible scenarios and make a list of those scenarios and see which of those are implementable. And um, try to get uh, interested um, actors to help. These uh, innovative and good um, proposals are usually uh, come from unexpected places. It is, it is not the powers to be. If you get the powers to be to help, that's absolutely wonderful. But usually it has been the case that you cannot. But there are um, many other sources of help. So it, it is uh, a community organization finding uh, enough uh, small agencies, putting them together, getting them to think about it. And then our role becomes, those who are living and are getting older, our role becomes to try to disseminate this information, talk about it with as many people as possible. And I just hope that more and more of the public comes across this information, so that the information will slowly diffuse into the public consciousness. You've been listening to Resilience 2100, a podcast about navigating change in the 21st century. That was Nikos Salangeros, professor of mathematics at the University of Texas in San Antonio. To find out more about Nikos and to find more about resilience, visit our website at www.resilience2100.com or you can find us in your favorite local podcast provider. Thank you. Come back again soon.